0: Hello and welcome to episode four. Wow, we had a lot of fun this week. We were lucky enough to sit down with Alushala Adebi, aka Shola Story, who is such an incredible storyteller and all-round human being. We had a really wonderful exploration of how storytelling influences the way that we view the world and the way that societies are shaped and the Future is Formed. We looked at how our imagination and our creativity need to be nourished if we're to create the world that we want to live in. Shola is an African storyteller, author, director and founder of Narrative Mindfulness. He's a lead facilitator of the absolutely incredible youth organisation Beats. which if you don't know them, I'd really recommend checking them out. We'll put a link in the description. This man wears so many hats with serious style and is an incredibly captivating orator, as you're about to find out. As this episode is a lot about the important role that stories play in shaping the world around us, we had to ask Shola to start by telling us a story that he thought would help set the context for our episode. So without further ado, let's dive in.
1: All right. So I'm going to tell you a story. Um, It's a Ghanaian story. I've heard it called Eagle and Chicken. So I'll call it Eagle and Chicken. And um, I'm going to, in the tradition of African storytelling, ask you to join in, like to do a little bit of a call and response at times. Right. So um, the first thing I'm going to say, in a place far from here, and I would like you to say, but near to there. So, in a place far from here, but near to there, I said in a place far from here,
2: but But near near to to there,
1: Mm -hmm, that's right, in a place far from here, but near to there, a man was walking through a farm. And it was a lovely sunny day. He was enjoying himself. And on that farm, there were lots and lots of chickens. And the chickens were doing what chickens do. Just like chickens do. And the man walked through and then suddenly he stopped and he stared. What on earth is that? For in front of him was a chicken that was at least three foot tall. He had never seen a chicken that big before. So he looked a little bit closer and saw that this chicken was not a chicken at all. It was actually an eagle. But the eagle was walking around with the chickens, pecking the ground and going, like a, you can join in and say chicken, like a chicken. Chicken. Exactly. (laughs) So the man said, no, 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 no. I'm going to teach this eagle how to fly. This is not right. So he Climbed up to the top of a barn, held the eagle up on his arm. So if you can hold the eagle up on your arm like this. And he said, behold yourself and fly. So if we can all do that together. He said, behold, behold yourself and
2: fly. fly.
1: And he threw the eagle in the air and the eagle plopped to the ground. And went, brruh, 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 like a chicken. Exactly. chicken. <laughs> and so the man climbed down the tree. Picked up the eagle again. Um, sorry, climbed down the barn, picked up the eagle again, and this time climbed to the top of a tall tree. And at the top of the tall tree, he held the eagle up on his arm. So hold the eagle up on your arm like so. And he said, Behold yourself and fly. And, fly. Fly. and he threw the eagle high into the air, and the eagle spread her wings and flapped to the ground, going. Like a chicken. Exactly. So this time the man climbed to the top of a mountain. It was a walking climb, so it was doable. And he walked to the top of this high mountain. And at the top of the mountain, he looked down. And far, far, far below, he could see the silver ribbon of a river winding through the land. Could feel the breeze and the thermals as a caressed his skin, and ruffled the eagle's feathers. And the eagle had never been that high before. She saw the trees. She felt the trees. She felt them in her heart. There was something different, something luminous. She couldn't say what, but she felt it. And so the man held the eagle up on his arm like so, and he said, behold yourself and fly. And fly and the eagle spread her wings and she began to soar and swoop because she realized at last that she was an eagle and not a chicken the end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And I, I, I love that story. I like that story because it's easy for me to speak about the themes with small children and with adults. So with small children, I will say, you know, this is a story about your uniqueness. It's a story about understanding mm-hmm. who you are. They often say things like, Yes, because if I follow him and he does something bad, then that means I get in trouble as well. And then I will say, yes, exactly. But it's not just about um, getting in trouble or not getting in trouble. It's also about being really confident that who you are is who you need to be. You don't need to be somebody else. You only need to inhabit. There's a saying, isn't there, that um, be yourself, everyone else is taken you know, and it's out, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's around that. And with adults, then we can also move into exploring genius, can move, move into exploring what does it actually mean to be yourself in the context of the world right now? Mm-hmm. And we could probably use that to unpack racism, gender inequalities. You know, there's, there's lots that it could be used for.
0: <laughs> Thanks for indulging us with that. I really appreciate that. Uh, it got me thinking, actually, you know, the first time I was lucky enough to go and see the mountains, how deep the connection was there, how I realised that so much of my identity was uh, linked to to, ma- to mountain environments. But maybe you know, growing up in London didn't get to experience that so much. And it makes me think, like, you know, how the more we allow people to experience themselves in different environments, the more the chance they have to discover who it is they really want to be and who it is they truly are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is... So, um, I work with an organisation called LifeBeat, um, which um, uses creative techniques and, if you like, outdoor education to really help young people bring their whole selves into, into play. It also helps the adults, actually. That's why people are so keen to volunteer. Um, but over the years, uh, not only with LifeBeat, but with Corrie, um, an organization I used to co-lead, and with various different uh, facilitations I've done in nature, I've seen that nature itself, being in the environment of woods, rivers, mountains, and um, mountains, it actually does, I would say, 60% of the job that we as a staff are trying to do. they mm-hmm. Their fears in the night, even though they're all big and bold, but as soon as it's uh, nighttime and they can't see even three inches in front of their noses and we say we're going into the woods no torches and they're like <laughs> holding our hands and you know these are big 17 year old guys and uh, screaming when a, a little insect lands on them and you know and um, they, they are so they they, they are confronted with their fears and their fears are part of their identity in terms of it being a reflexive response to external mm. conditions but comes from them you know so we can then use that to unpack identity we can go backwards if you like from the response to who are you actually yeah, yeah and then of course really
2: nice, and do... i know go on
1: Well, I was just thinking, because as I said it, I was thinking about, we took these um, children from an inner city school. Uh, It was an Ofsted thing. So Ofsted were coming in and the school (laughs) said, we need to get rid of these children because they're going to spoil the Ofsted um, results, Um, which is a a somewhat dubious practice. But anyway, um, we took these children to um, Dartmoor and um, they were complaining. The journey was too long. It was too hot. Um you know the grass um, at that time of the year, one you could feel the water underneath the grass. So the grass was kind of bouncy and um, they they were complaining about that and um, they were complaining about insects and having to walk past cows. And then we got to this hill and one of them rolled down the hill. And then the next one rolled down the hill. And then they were all rolling down the hill. And then suddenly they were no longer teenagers who were too cool for school. They were just children. Children. And then after that, the whole trip was a joy. But it was the nature that did it. not Nothing that we said or did changed their mind in the moment. It was actually the environment. Mm, That's
2: also also a really beautiful story that brings alive... uh quite a lot of the work that we do and are going to be doing in the future is you know, giving uh, opportunities to young people in terms of changing up the environment and uh, yeah, le- learning more deeply from within themselves. So I, I, I'm really curious to know why is, why youth, like why do you work, why is youth your focus? I'm so curious to know.
1: Actually, I work with all ages. I love intergenerational projects where we get young people to go to elders' homes and have conversations with them, and also um, people of my age as well being involved, although now I'm moving into the elder um, cycle, I suppose. But I love working with young people particularly, and the reason is because they they are more open even young people who have had very tough lives and who, on the face of it, are quite closed, still don't have as many onion layers of closure and defensiveness as adults, you know. And so it's not easier, although easier is part of it, but it's, it's more rewarding more quickly to work with young people. And also... By, and, and young people can actually change their lives around. They can change their, their mindset completely so that you wouldn't even know that it's the same young person much more, much more fluently than, than we as adults can because we've got all our histories, our childhood is f- further away from us and we've already thought about our childhood and we've formed our own conclusions and we're not as open to anybody else saying things unless we invite it that's a different thing but with young people the invitation is almost we're going somewhere we're going to do some work we we trust that this work can be transformative for you are you in you know and then once they come then we will create a set of agreements but ultimately the fact that they came is a big part of the work.
0: Yeah. It shows how much we can learn from youth and how if we really revalued the place and that youth hold in society and, and the wisdom inherent in their, you know, in the fresh energy that they bring, the youthfulness, the unadulterated expression. I think we said that in the last episode that I only realized that unadulterated actually, you know, unadults. So they haven't quite been restricted by being an adult yet. and it just makes you yeah, realise how, if, if we look at cultures where the, the fresh perspective and the intelligence of youth and children is really valued for what it is, there's so much w- learning to be had there.
1: Yeah, I think that we, we live in an upside down culture in the sense that the, the wisdom of the elders is not valued. So we call them old people. Like we almost, yeah. Okay, you're passing yourself. In fact, people say that, don't they? You're passing yourself by day, you know, or retire-
0: ret- you say, retirement, yeah.
1: retirement, how can you retire from life? But anyway, um, so <laughs> yeah. uh, retirement, but it's also upside down in the sense that it valorizes youth. But not youth for the wisdom of youth, youth for the external factors of youth, you know, the, the young face, the, the taut body, the, the, um, the dynamism, which is all, it's fine, it's all part of youth. We've all experienced it, we've all been young people. So we know that there is an energy to youth that is very attractive, you know. But when that energy is made to be the be all and end all, of things, it's also quite destructive. So, lots of people are the anorexia, the, eat, the eating disorders, the um, feelings of worthlessness because of how I look, etc. They're all linked to this over obsession with young people, and as though if you're not young, somehow you're not, you're not okay. There's something. A bit wrong with you if you're not a young person. Mm. Children, I've even heard children say, "Ee, she." Yeah, yeah, it's
2: yeah. like a, it's not a respected thing. No, it's not. Yeah, yeah. And you, you mentioned earlier, not you work in a very intergenerational kind of context, and I, I feel like, in certainly in the UK, like intergenerational, this there's, there's there's a real lack of spaces for intergenerational kind of coming together and gathering and. From my knowledge of life beat you're creating real intergenerational kind of communities and platforms um and i just would love to know like what that brings out and i guess in the context of i've been reading more and more research that is showing that a large reason for kind of really severe mental health uh, issues especially amongst adolescents is because they lack a trusted adult in their life um and so I'd be really I'd really love to know what intergenerational um, uh, environments do for well everyone included like what have you noticed or, or witnessed the, or created that's really been like this this is this is transformational
1: Well um, I'm glad that you said for all of us because it really is that it really is that there's you know, I think in, in many adults, not all adults, but many adults are, have a quite um, parental response to young people who are, especially if the young people are struggling, you know, um, a desire to, to help. And certainly that would be true of the adults that attend Lifebeat camps. But what's also true is that the adults are actually grown up children who needed help when we were young and so we appreciate what is happening because i know for example speaking from the eye that had i had me come and say the things to me that i've said to to young people i think my life would have been different i think it would have the trajectory i'm on now i think i would have been on it a lot earlier and uh, with a great deal more clarity actually, and uh, and and to have an ability, because I've just had a conversation with um, a group of people, we were talking about vulnerability. And in the intergenerational situation, it seems easier to bring vulnerability into play in service of the whole group so that people are, adults and young people are, are much more willing to answer the call of the invitation to share something of oneself, knowing that other people are also going to share something of themselves and also knowing that even if we make a mistake, that all we're going to hear in response is, we support you, Shola, or we support you, Nikki," or Max, etc. Mm-hmm. It's really quite powerful. We've, one of the centrepieces of the LifeBeat camp is the heart circle. Now, in the heart circle, the adults don't actually share. Well, we do, but we only share something that will move the energy. We're not sharing the depth of our lives, yeah. Um, but largely because of safeguarding reasons. So we don't want to say things that will tri- trigger young people into an emotional or, or mental meltdown. Mm-hmm. I might say something about me and my children that is... Resident for a child in the room who hasn't got through what they di- what they've dealt with, but feel like I am what I've done with my children is similar to what happened to them, and therefore they can't trust me anymore. Because you know, there's lots of um, nuance in 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 this, but what sure. actually does happen is that because over the the course of the, the few days before the heart circle. We have been sharing. We've been sharing aspects of our lives, always bounded, but aspects of our lives, revealing more and more of ourselves in communication with the young people, particularly in in the family group set up, if you remember that, Nikki. But we, we all go into small groups over the course of the week, and we stay in those families, if you like, over the course of the week, and we share in those families. So when the big groups come together, it's actually like a village of small families that have been sharing for the whole week. And um, there's a level of trust that is built up that makes a heart circle possible. And the young people feel held by us, which is our intention, because we just listen. And we listen deeply. And it's a deep thing. We, we have to talk to the adults beforehand to say that it's not just to give the appearance of listening because listening is an energetic. It's not just that I'm, I, you know, I'm not saying anything. I have to actually listen, actively listen. And it does create a, a sense that a container that allows the young people to share. And it only takes one young person. At first, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of silence, giggles, when we open the heart circle, we open it quite ceremoniously and then people are looking around. We might speak to that (laughs) and say you it's very normal to feel nervous in a situation like that. But as soon as a young person the first young person shares, wow, it's like a just one after the other after the other. Mm -hmm. And it's so beautiful because what they say has resonance so the adults in the room are feeling it too because the young people are describing our situation as well because we're cho- we we are all children you know and we've all we are all human we feel the same thing, same ways often about the same sorts of things so if somebody's been abused it's easy to think about a time when I was abused or when I was abusive or when I saw somebody else being abused and it had this impact on me etc. So by the end of the that piece, the, there's a drop down in... There's, a, there's, a, there's more trust. People drop into trust yeah. more deeply. And then there's much more connectivity between the young people and the staff. And I feel that it wouldn't happen if there were no... If it was just young people, no matter how intelligent and wise they were as young people i don't know whether they would get to that unless they were 20 year olds with 10 year olds then that's there may be but as teenagers uh, i'm i'm not sure i think that the intergenerational aspect of it really makes a difference
0: It shows that everyone has a mentorship role to others, no matter what age you are. A 15-year-old has a lot of experience of what it is like to be an early teenager to share with someone who's about to start that process. And likewise, if you're 19 to a 15-year-old and so on. Yeah. When you're sharing that, it made me think about the importance, from what I understand, of the Life Beat programs as well, the ritualized and ceremonial aspects of it and how that creates that safety and that trust so that when those stories that you know, when young people's stories do start to be shared they it's held in a really um, really careful and safe way and how that allows them to really express themselves and what's really alive for them in their lives and that expression you know it's, it's yearning to come out of them they've, they've got so much that they want to learn and discover about the world and it's by telling their stories and hearing their stories in other people's that they, we, you know, we develop a sense of belonging and a uh, sense of community, like you're saying. Mm. Obviously, storytelling is, uh, and creative storytelling is such a key part of the way that you uh, do your work. I'm curious to ask where that came from and, and how that uh, drives y- you in your work.
1: Hmm, that's a, a really good question, in, especially in terms of where it came from, because I didn't ever have... Any formal storytelling training, but what I did have (coughs) was parents who. My father used to speak in proverbs, Um, so he was always he had he had a proverb for everything in actual fact, and he liked to say he liked to say (coughs) a Yoruba man (laughs) says. So as soon as he said that, we knew that here comes something that we better be listening to. (laughs) You know, Um, my mum. She, she was, um, she liked to read stories. So, um, all of those English stories, like the three little pigs, um, Little Red Riding Hood, Hansel and Gretel, all of those stories, I heard them from my mum first. Actually, she told them to me, um, at bedtimes and other times. And I did the same actually with my own children. And I'm doing it now with my grandchildren. Um, and then, um, also, I had a teacher called Mrs. Moores. It's funny how you remember that teacher, isn't it? But anyway, I had a teacher called Mrs. Moores, and this was in what would now be called year two. Um, I think it was the second year of juniors, did we? No, infants. Second year of infants, I think we used to call it. And um, she, she was fantastic. Mm-hmm. She would make up stories on the spot we had this um, person in our class called Mr Roundy who was invisible because we always said, well, miss, how come when we leave the class in such a terrible state, we come back in the morning and it's so pristine? Well, not in those words, you know. Um, and she said, she said it was because of Mr Roundy and she told us about Mr Roundy and we were, every every evening we'd be sitting there, miss, miss, we want to know about Miss Mr Roundy, you know. And um, I loved I loved that interaction and I loved it so much that um, that when I got older, I wanted to recreate some of that with young people because it, to me, it felt magical. It really did. It was, Mm. it was, I kind of knew it wasn't true as children do, you know, Mm. but at the same time I was loving the feeling of if it was true, it would be, you know, that kind Mm. of thing. And, um, you know, with search, We'd go looking around the classroom, looking for Mr. Randy. (laughs) Of course, we couldn't find him because he was invisible, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. So it's those, those early experiences were quite um, seminal for me in terms of giving me a passion for stories. I, Hmm. my mum tells a story of, um, because I love books. I've always loved books. And apparently I don't remember it, but she tells me that when I was in that same class, so I was about six or, yeah, six, that she came in for a parents' evening. And um, in those days, we used to have these open and shut desks and we'd keep our books inside the desks. And um, my mum looked in my desk, which was part of what parents did at parents' evening, and saw four or five books open at different pages. And so she went to Mrs. Moore's in some consternation to say, "Well, he's not focusing. He's jumping from one to another." And Mrs. Moore said, "Oh no, it's not that. He's reading all of them at the same time. Ask him anything about any anything in any of those books." And she did. And I knew. I don't remember it. I wish I could remember it actually, but I don't. <laughs> that's but, yeah, that's what my mum says. So yeah. Um, I love stories, I love writing, Well, actually, I love having written, I don't love the part before I write. Um, I like the idea of writing, but not actually sitting down to do it. And um, in my 20s, when I went to university, um, because I did a lot of messing around before that, so I was 25, I went to East London University, I did a, a cultural studies degree And um, I also joined the African Society. So I started to learn at that point about different aspects of African culture, both African continental cultures, but African diasporic cultures as well. Um, History, um, going back thousands of years and um, recognizing that there was this person called the griots or the arokin or the jelly or the jelly, this storyteller, this bard character who mm. was there in all of these histories and who had such a, a high status and who was considered to be a healer and a like a traveling newspaper, uh, a, a court um, psychologist and therapist um, all at the same time. And um, I, at that same time, I was asked. I started a, a, a martial art, which was an African martial art. Um, but it was a, it was it was led by a Grenadan and uh, Saint Vincent, so they are Caribbean people. But over the years, I've seen it really is an African martial art because of what I now know about African martial arts. Um, and it was quite performative, so we would have you have you seen capoeira yeah yeah Yeah, so it looks like capoeira actually um with some differences so it's quite performative it's music singing and um, dance like movement Mm -hmm. and in one of our performances i was asked to um read a story that was going to be um Played in this story, in this uh, storytelling piece, and acted out by um, one of our instructors. But that instructor was ill, and the recorder wasn't working. So they said to me, "Well, you recorded the story, so you tell the story." And I was like, "I can't do that. There's lots of people in the place, and you know, I'm not a storyteller, (laughs) etc., etc." And so um, I did it. With lots of trepidation, but at the end, everyone was saying that was fantastic. I didn't believe them, but I did it again, and for about a year, um, I whenever I was asked to tell a story, I told that story because I felt like I couldn't tell another story, and I knew how to tell that one, you know. Um, but what I did, what did start to happen is that uh, people would see me telling the story. And they would say, oh, would you be willing to come into our school? Our children would love this. And so I would say, Mm. "Mm, they're going to pay me, okay. So, (laughs) you know, so I would go to the school. And um, after a couple of years, I started to realize uh, it's not just that story, but it's a a way that I tell Mm. stories and that actually Mm. I am a storyteller. Um, so I started to own it and then I also started to marry it with the youth work um, when I'd, I'd be in a youth club and um, everyone would be bored they'd played enough the pool they were like messing around and I'd say I start telling the story um, as if I was just talking to them you know and then they'd realise it was a story and then they'd listen <laughs> you know and um, so I just started to marry them and then I started to learn to drum mm. so I brought that into it too um, and then collaborations with other people meant that we could do productions and not just yeah. a single storyteller and we've now moved into getting instead of just telling stories but having young people recognise that they too are storytellers actually that came to me through LifeBeat that definitely mm. did through the facilitation of the people that trained us in life LifeBeat um, we're all storytellers and we all tell stories and we can be trained to have presence in doing that too. You know. So I don't know if I it's answered awesome. your question.
2: Yeah, that definitely did. Wow. Through a really lovely story.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And yeah, as a youth are storytellers so in the heart circle life beat, it sounds like you know what they're doing is sharing their stories with one another and it's that that power of stories to heal really um, sit so deeply inside of me when you know when you the fact that stories can span across all different themes and weave together all the different elements of life and can have lessons about how we relate to ourselves, our identity, the environment
2: around us,
0: uh, our you know all, all aspects of life.
2: Yeah, I'd be curious to know. Given we're in quite a treacherous world right now <laughs> in some elements like um love to know where currently you might be using your your weaving of all your many aspects uh, especially within the storytelling for that notion of healing where that might be showing up for you currently of the times that we're living in where there's just so many wounds on, like, a collective and also kind of really an individual level.
1: Yes, um, well, I've been um, almost thrust into the forum, actually, of um, having conversations about race, racism, particularly after George Floyd's murder. Um, it's always it's, so it's really, as you said, very, very current. Um, well, the first thing I would say is that it's... It's a, it's a strange time because I've never actually witnessed, in my own lifetime, I've never actually witnessed a, a situation in which um, the white people are saying, um, I want to do work on myself around racism. It's something that is very new to me. I've not heard it before, mm. you know. So actually things feel different. Things feel different. And it does feel as if there is, a a space in which weaving creativity stories um you know uh, philosophy and therapy that it, it can actually have a real impact now i don't know whether that impact will will be systemic as in um in terms of the people that control the system but definitely in terms of the people who we interact with on a a day-to-day or Mm month-to-month basis, there is a possibility of a new type of communication. So to hone in on whether um, I've been practicing storytelling, etc., in healing ways, first of all, I would say that yes, absolutely, but with me first, Um, I hadn't realized When I first started having this dialogue, I mean, I always knew that I was angry about racism, you know, um, it's -hmm. not something that I can ignore. But I hadn't realised until we started having a conversation in LifeBeat and in other organisations about what exactly systemic racism was what is white privilege, what is white mm-hmm. fragility, etc.? cetera. Um, all of these terms which have been coined and are actually quite useful in different ways. Um, but I hadn't realised that there was a lot that I'd been swallowing over the years and that I'd pushed down. And so when I started to talk about these things, I'd find myself feeling quite angry and um, wanting people to also feel the pain of my mm-hmm. pain. Um, which I don't blame myself for that. But at the same time, I was finding that, um, and I have found that it makes it difficult for me to speak a truth that is healing when the energetic is vengeful. Do you see what I mean? Hmm. So I understood then, I mean, I always understood this, I suppose, but I understood it even more clearly that it's not so much the words, it's the energy behind the words, you know, and because um, words are only conduits and carriers of energy anyway. I found that I've been I've been telling stories in, in many different ways. I've been sharing videos um, about history. I took over a LinkedIn platform of one of my LifeBeat colleagues he said, why don't you take over my platform for seven days because I've got such a wide following and um, people will respond through this platform. Um, I thought about it a bit. Um, I thought, well, I don't want to be uh, guilty of um, just getting involved um, for, the, for the likes, etc., because it's quite seductive, actually to be involved in social media and then to start checking how many people like your comment and your page and so on and so forth. But I do want to say something. So I made um, a series of seven videos. and, And one of my favorite ones was when I asked the question. So what do you think white people Europeans found when they first went to Africa? Now, I ask that question because when I was a child, I was so influenced by Tarzan, um, mm-hmm. um, what's it called? Um, Carlyle's work, what was that? Um, the Dark Continent. Images of the dark continent, um, savages with bones through their noses, with um, um, a a white woman, usually a blonde woman, in a cauldron about to be cooked, and so on and so forth, saved only by the timely intervention of Tarzan, that alpha male, yes, that white male who understands Africa more than the Africans who live there, etc, etc. So that was... Well, I understood this is me, even with African parents living in an African household. So I knew that some resonance of that would probably be what people would be thinking. But I was really inviting them carefully by saying, don't worry, this is not about um, me flaying you for your views. It's to say that I know that there is a very skewed image of Africa and African history. Mm. And if we don't examine that, we can't really um, decolonize ourselves from the impacts of racism, as long as we believe something that's not true about the people who are the subjects of the racism, you know? So I asked that question. Um, Some people said things like um, trees, in answer to what what was there, um, animals? Uh, houses, question mark, cities, question mark, you know. So the next one that I shared was about here is what they found. And so I showed images of the empire of Ghana, Mali, Songhai, the Moorish empires in Europe, the ancient Egyptian, the Nubian, lots of different things. And, um, so, they saw cities in these images and the links. They learned about um, poetry, African poetry. They learned about African inventions, that blacksmithing, for example, was actually a foremost African invention. And that, I don't know if you knew, by the way, that African blacksmiths, even during the period of enslavement in the Americas, were always free. Because they were, their technology was better than any other blacksmithing technology mm. at the time in the up until the industrial revolution, basically, and um, so I was able to share some of those things, and that really opened up the the conversation. People started to say, "Well, it's true." Yes, I did think this, and I did think that, um, and I said, I responded with some stories. Um, I directed them to uh, Facebook Live where I was telling stories, where I am telling stories, actually. I'll leave you with the link at the end. Um, And the stories were therapeutic because I wasn't being judgmental. The stories weren't intended to punish or flay. And the storytelling, being able to tell stories like that, meant that I had to... Um, really elevate where I myself was and am in relation to racism and to recognise that a race race itself is a construct. It is a story, actually, that has been Mm -hmm. told primarily by the Europeans who went to Africa, India, Australia, etc., in order to justify the predation, the aggression and the Civilizationary um mission that they were on. That's the story. Civilizationary mission. Rudyard Kipling, Kipling, the storyteller said, "The white man's burden, not the white woman's burden. Please note, but the white man's burden is to civilize all of these um these peoples, these benighted peoples, um, and the whole the whole idea of white and black." was created then because the Romans never spoke about white or black people. Neither did the ancient Greeks who were also Europeans, but whose cultures were actually multicultural, um, particularly the Roman, the Roman empire was a multicultural empire. Anyway, so I found that telling stories is a, a wonderful thing because people love stories generally people actually like storytelling and so people start really listening and um, as a storyteller I can see you know start to see people's eyes (laughs) you know if ears could waggle they'd be waggling Um, (laughs) and um, people are really listening and the beauty of that is that then they're already listening I don't know if you remember from the creative practice, um, imagination, participation, commitment. Yeah. So they're already listening. They're already participating. So then it's possible to move from that to a commitment to the moral, the ideal of the story, particularly if they're in a thread in which the ideal of the story is being openly discussed, actually. So then they can really listen. And because people are really listening with their whole being, so to speak, then their whole being is in the, the, the solution that is presented to. And they, they're open to hearing it. So I think storytelling, certainly for me, has been invaluable in not therapy, but therapeutic types mm-hmm. of conversations.
2: And what it sounds, thank you so much for sharing that. And what it sounds is it's it's, it's a number of things. A, it's like storytelling is so accessible. Uh, it's, it, it's more likely you're going to be tuned into that than reading like a flat article. And um, And it's such a great way to learn from history and then kind of take the morals and start rewriting it because... On a really individual level, i mean i'll speak for myself um well when you were sharing, I had a bit of a a flip upbringing in that i would i' grow up with white South African family, but really with an understanding of deep African history and also that understood proverbs and and I think that when you talked about kind of splitting at the moment, go you know white people sitting with white people and black people sitting with black people, with also um, opportunities to come together, we can really go into our roots and the the history or the mishistory that has been given to then back, come back together and have conversations and and actually. Have really edgy conversations, um, which I think is gonna be the the shift in energy that that we need. Um, so it's really nice to hear just your journey with that, from you know accessing your roots in university to using the storytelling today as a way to actually teach history, um, which yeah there's a real there's a real silence of of black history um on an international level so i really think storytelling could bring that part alive
0: yeah. well i think with you know with stories is it's also what can teach us about the past and It's also what gives us an imagination about what could be about the future for ourselves and as a collective you know i think a lot of the media really doesn't help us in painting an image of the world and creating a story about the world as very separate and destructive and, you know, pain, suffering everywhere, and that's all we see. And it's not to say that, you know, there is a lot of that, but there's also other stories going on. And if we can connect to creating those stories, perhaps we'll be more likely to steer the ship a bit better.
1: Yeah, yeah. I truly believe that. That's. Um, I think that the opportunity here is to change the world for our grandchildren. I think that what we are embarking on now, we might not see its fruition, but I believe that the seed has been planted, and certainly we can impact our children and. Good, the wonderful thing about good practices is that uh, if we teach our children good practices, what they do with their children is even in advance of what we did with them because they've learned what we've learned and they've also learned their own stuff as well that they bring into it. You know, so um, I really am hopeful about the the grandchildren or even the great grandchildren how they how they encounter the world because they are. Um, talking in in primary schools now about some of these issues. And because the adults are much less committed to shutting down um, voices that are uncomfortable, it means that those children are much more likely to get responses that open them and that may be inspiring them a love of knowledge or um, an interest in, in diversity. So, yeah, it's, I, I, you can hear that I'm hopeful um, in this time. I'm not, I'm not naive, so I know that it's going to take a lot. And uh, one of the things that I'm really clear about is that um, there's a book called um, White Supremacy and Me by... Uh, I've forgotten her name. Leila
0: Saad. Is it Sard Saad,
1: yeah, yeah Layla Sad. I've um, been skimming through it quite, really, with a great deal of interest actually to see what she's saying. But one of the things that's clear to me, um, just with that cursory reading of that, and also recognizing what I already thought in what she's saying, um, is that white supremacy is a commission. It's something that is acted acted upon daily through, expressed through white privilege, expressed through um, systems that aggress on people who are of darker hue, etc. Those things need to be dismantled because even if you, uh, Max, and you, Nikki, um, really free yourselves from all aspects of, say, privilege and um, uh, feelings of whatever about black people, whatever those may be. Even if you and 20,000 other people do that, the system will remain the same unless you and other white people also address the actual system mm-hmm. itself, you know, and in terms of lobbying. Um, in terms of articles and who you vote for and what you vote for and campaigns, all of those things. Exactly. Until there's a narrative, a powerful narrative of anti-racism that is as powerful as the systems of white Mm. supremacy. Then it will topple because it's it's not real. It's really the emperor's new clothes. You know, yeah. and um, it's taken the children because actually the Black Lives Matters campaigns—it's mainly young people. So it's mm. taken the children to say, "Wait a minute, what are you all clapping for? You're not wearing any clothes. That's not a costume,
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah, it's not real." I, I'm really hopeful as well that it ties in with the environmental activism in youth that we're seeing, uh, you know. In, the fact that we're re- realizing that this lie that we're taught—that we're separate from nature and that nature is a resource to be exploited and extracted it's the same lie as the lie that other humans are there to be exploited and extracted from. And I'm really hopeful that we, you know, that those two narratives really in the public arena get woven together very intimately.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I think that again is about. Creating a new narrative, founded on earlier narratives of the wisdom of indigenous peoples. I really love what the Native Americans say when they say, "The earth and all are relatives," meaning mm-hmm. the flies and the the rivers and and you know, and all of those things. I um, did a little bit of research into sacred groves in Africa, because I know that the people I'm from, the Yoruba, that we used to have sacred groves, which have largely been destroyed now, but there are still some there, fortunately. Um, The sacred grove um, was, it was called a grove, but actually they usually covered areas like hundreds of acres. And the idea was that within the grove there would be a tree, or some elder trees, that had been there from the time of the ancestors of the ancestors of the ancestors, and that the whole forest was there in order to preserve these um, sacred trees. You know, which meant, of course, that the whole forest was sacred because mm-hmm. all of the trees had a role <laughs> in this. And so, um, yes, Africans did make things out of wood drums and all kinds of things. But it was always ceremonial. It was never just like, going to chop it down. Let's clear away a whole forest. There's a forest where I live in, Haringey. There's, There's a beautiful wood called Queenswood and another one called Highgate Wood. They are five acres together and they are the last remnants of the ancient forest of Middlesex, which King... Edward, I think, I'm not sure which Edward, but in the 11th century, ordered to be chopped down to build ships. You know? mm. So when I'm walking around there, I always feel a sense of, I love it, and I feel a sense of loss as well. Yeah. What would it have been if that had happened? And in actual fact, picking up on something you said, uh, Max, um, I actually think that the um, aggression on the feminine The aggression on the other and the aggression on the environment are all part of the same thing. Hmm. Um, I think that archetypically Western European culture is a very hyper patriarchal culture that cannot accept the feminine as it cannot valorize the feminine. The feminine has to be marginalized, which of course impacts women, um, because the archetype of the the of the feminine is more um, clearly realized in women than it is in, in men. So therefore, women are aggressed upon in this paradigm. I also believe that that patriarchal viewpoint is sees certain cultures as feminine as well. Mm-hmm. So the African and the Native American insistence on custodianship of the land yeah. of uh, herbs um using herbs of um, um rituals which are which would now be called psychotherapy or um or, or of um things which are about going within in order to bring out I think that the Western culture, particularly of the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries and the 20th century, saw those things as being feminine, therefore other, uh, archetypically feminine, other, not to be taken seriously, needing a gentle, firm, fatherly hand and a good fatherly stick if they were um, transgressing, you know. Um, So it's the the story of western civilization needs for its psychological well-being which is actually not really well-being but um, psychological bolstering to feel as though it has a handle on women on the feminine on um, native or indigenous cultures that it is the foremost civilization. This is why I said the world is upside down because actually Western leaders and the houses of parliament are so it's childish. It's childlike. (laughs) I mean just because you disagree with somebody you then say and you shout them down and you ridicule them and it's all schoolboy behavior. And um and the women that are involved in politics often have to be like that. They have to be very masculine in order to get ahead, like Margaret Thatcher is a good example, you know. So, yes, absolutely. I I believe that the the environment, which is seen as feminine, um, to be taken, to be taken, because patriarchy takes, it takes the feminine, you know. It extracts materials. It believes that in some foolish notion of um infinite resources in a finite world you know so it never stops it's never satisfied it's like a vampire just take <laughs> take 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 take. okay you're dead i'll take from them instead then okay so now you're dead it, it never stops so it has mm-hmm. to stop it has to stop otherwise it will destroy itself and all of us with it
2: mm-hmm yeah wow well, yeah it's,
0: uh, couldn't agree more
2: it, 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 just as you were describing that I was also just thinking about gosh you're all, like that's also described the education system and something you mentioned that's a passion of yours I, I, well I think our shared values and passion is uh, like holistic education and that need for that system to really change because they are the few, you know the people that are in that system kids know it's like a waste of time and um to be blunt I mean I, I work in a school they know that they're just kind of a cog in the machine and so it's really for that system to change too but what what I think's worth celebrating and you mentioned it earlier and I remember sitting in the training having a bit of a thought being like Wow, if I would have met Shola when I was a teenager, my life would have been a bit different because I kind of needed a role model like that. And I think it's really worth celebrating that outside of the current main system, there are these incredible ecosystems Mm. of uh, organisations who are giving platforms, basically bringing the feminine, like listening, bringing the heart circles, um, including Mm. young people, um, bringing stories. A lot of those
0: organisations that are doing really groundbreaking work now are drawing on really ancient traditions and wisdoms and earth connected ways of organising you know we're learning now there's so much in terms of like organisational organization, design that is uh, being learnt from how trees are communicating in forests and how ecosystems and the diversity in ecosystems and how important that is, the uniqueness of each being and how it all adds up to this beauty, beautiful almost incomprehensible creation that we're Living on, I really feel like those a lot of the schools, organisations, uh, philosophies are really drawing from, are uh, realising that this yeah, the kind of the enlightenment that the West discovered. <laughs> it's the most oxymoronic term ever. But the <laughs> enlightenment.
2: <laughs> Never really thought about
0: that. <laughs> uh, and that path that that's taken us down is you know we've got to back step quite a bit and then go the other direction.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Actually, i never thought of it that way as well. Either you know, the oxymoron of that, <laughs> enlightened discovery. <laughs> it's ironic, anyway, isn't it? Is, it? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what, You know something that's been really quite interesting since the lockdown is that homeschool networks have really flourished. Mm. And I've spoken to a few people. I said, "So, when this is all over, are you sending your chat? Tr- they cut me up. No, <laughs> no way." I am not sending my child back to school, Um, Mm. which is great because if more and more people get involved in homeschool networks, it will force the government, they will be forced to change education. if If their commitment is still to every child must go to school, they will be forced to change the schools in order to bring people back. Because naturally, if I'm in a homeschool school network that is connected to because the homeschool networks um, I'm aware of, they're connected to other homeschool networks, so it's not yeah. it's no longer a silo of say three or four people who are trying their hardest to educate um, seven kids and they don't really have that much in terms of resources. They've got no help and, you know, and it's a real hassle and a slog and the children don't really get to socialise with anyone except those seven children. It's not like that now. So there is a real sharing of techniques and resources, you know, so it's a different time. That is a different Mm. time. And education... I think is going to be heavily impacted by this um, lockdown. I really think it is. I really hope it is.
2: You too.
0: Yeah.
1: I suppose what's bubbling in me is um, what Ken Robinson, um, I, I, I have, I've got time for Ken Robinson. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of time for Ken yeah. Robinson. Um, but when he spoke about the school system, being, having been created in the um, 19th century um, in response to the Industrial Revolution and the need for children and people to be able to read the instructions in the factories, etc. Um, and that the system was set up to be like a factory, you know, in terms of the seating with the four-person, the foreman at the front, etc. All of that. It's amazing that, and another thing that he alludes to, and I've heard other people say, is that in the hundreds or more years since that time, that creation, everything else has changed. Phones mm-hmm. don't look the same. Cars don't look the same. Even houses don't really, uh, not the same. You know, roads are different. Yeah. Um, technology is different. We can walk around now with things that science fiction movies in the 1970s couldn't even conceive but we've got them now. But schools are the same. They're still yeah, the same. Crazy, you still get in trouble if you speak. Nobody asks you, well, what do you think about that, Tom? What's your opinion? Hmm. There are always teachers and mentors and staff who do, but they are not in the majority. And they also there is no performance related to anything in relation to that you know um it's all about sit down shut up produce the results then go to university where you get a little bit more leeway but you still can't write something that's against the papers that have been published by the people who are teaching the course you know so
0: yeah yeah um everyone still becomes a a number or a yeah kids leaving school are Given a two decimal place figure of what their progress has been. Yes, and I remember yes. a friend who's um, got a, a seven year old, and that she got called into the uh, teacher's office because they said, "Look, Felix has he's he's a zero point two, and he needs to be a zero point three in maths or something." It's like he's seven years old. Is he happy? Is he does he have friends? Is he able to like? is he getting enough exercise he's eating well
2: yeah. I'd love to know actually on on that and maybe it's a nice way to draw to the end you you mentioned that you're a grandparent and you also mentioned that it's kind of going to be in that next, in the skip generation where we'll start to see the change if you could imagine in a nutshell what, what education could look like for your grandchildren and their children what would that be to you in all your imagination?
1: Oh, wow. Well, um, are you sure we're drawing into a close? Because this could stretch.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: I think I might have opened up a, a good story <laughs> here, but that. I'm really excited to hear it. It's in just, a nutshell, like
1: yeah, it. <laughs> It's just that I believe all children are geniuses. You know, when you look at babies and you see their interaction with the world you you know that you're looking at genius you know so actually we dumb children down as far as i'm concerned we really we really tamp their genius some get through some despite that still manage to express their genius so i think that the education system will um still have an academic um orientation um however that it will also equally include uh, physical excellence, not just in terms of PE, but recognising that dance dance is part of physical excellence, that um, the ability to to forage is an intelligence, you know. Somebody who can go into the woods and come back with a meal is an intelligent person, you know, and uh, that... there will be different ways to measure intelligence, which um, was pioneered by uh, Gardner um, with the multiple intelligence theory, but which can expand in so many different ways. He posited nine, but there are many different types of intelligence. I imagine a, a, a schooling system in which the whole being of the child is welcomed. So I can imagine that, how we have circle time in primary schools, that that will be extended into secondary schools and not just about um, how was your weekend, but about how are you feeling? What are you struggling with? What help do you need? Here's what help I need. Here's what I have had to do and so on and so forth. Um, I believe that it will be an environment in which people, children are invited to come to school and to agree to a set of behavioral principles in service of all the children i believe that just like in life be actually i believe that the culture of the children will be part of the history curriculum so that we will learn in this area Green Lanes, we'll learn about Turkish history as well as English history, we'll learn about African Caribbean history as well as English history, we'll learn about that there will be a lot of decolonization. so instead of hearing about witch hunts we'll learn the truth that actually there was a destruction of earlier religions not Witches. It was earlier religions, and uh, they were largely headed by women. You know, we'll learn um, that the colonial project was a project of power, and that it was predicated on lies. It will become a knowledge by by that time, and all children, all children will learn not only how to farm, but how to re- and grow their own food. But how to replenish the earth whilst they do it. And they, so that will mean mindfulness will be taught in school, meditation and yoga will be taught in school, martial arts, not martial arts as in battering people, but martial, martial arts as in self discipline will be taught in schools. Eloquence, not just English language and speaking and learning, but eloquence will be taught in schools. Um, You know, um, people will learn to be reflective. All children will have journals. All children will use video, audio and written journals to record their own thoughts and the thoughts of the family groups that the schools will have inculcated um, so that they're checking in with each other on being levels every week, not just on, um, accomplishment. Um, uh, what's it? Uh, two decimal places, um, <laughs> uh, check-ins, you know, but on, on real check-ins, you know, if those things, because I know that other people will have other things to say about this, you know, it would be wonderful. I, I believe also that travel, um, well, travel will be different. You know, because there is something about taking a long time to travel that actually um, changes a person. So if I have to get to um, Gambia by walking across France and then Spain and then, um, you know, getting a boat to Morocco and then going through, etc., that's a completely different experience than Sitting on a plane for six hours, drinking Coca-Cola and eating crisps, and then arriving arriving there, and um, I think that's going to be part of of what is necessary because what the way we travel, is quick and it's it's great. It allows people like you and I to go to different places easily. However, it's also killing the environment, it's polluting the air. It's causing untold problems, and I believe that human creativity is such that if we cannot do that, we'll invent something else that won't have that imprint and won 't cause that but it 's only because there's no impetus because we 've got these things, and they 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 are monetarily verily effective at creating income for the people that own the airlines, et etc you know Um, I I suppose I'll close with saying that lots of people believe that because it is how it is it will always be you know they don't think that things can change but actually I know that things can change and I'm uh, completely clear about this because if they couldn't we'd all still be speaking Latin and you know this would be the Roman Empire at the end of the day all things come to a head all things close. All things,
2: yeah. Thank you. Thank you for painting that picture. <laughs> yeah. Thank, Thank you, Shola, for all your spirit and energy and stories and passions. It's been a real like joy and honour. And, yeah, I felt like I've been on a real journey today <laughs> in this conversation. Yeah, amazing. great. Fantastic.
1: Those are the kind of um, conversations I love
2: thanks so much for tuning in today watch out for our up and coming episodes in the meantime if you're interested in the work that Maxim and I do with the visionaries check out our website on www.thevisionaries.org.uk